Why does poverty persist? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Mike Tanner. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Mike Tanner. Mike is a senior fellow with the Cato Institute, where he heads research on a variety of domestic policy issues with an emphasis on poverty and social welfare policy, healthcare, and social security and entitlement reform. He is also a frequent commentator on cable and network television, and his writing has appeared in nearly every major American newspaper. He is the author of several books, including Going Broke, Deficits, Debt, and the Entitlement Crisis, and Leviathan on the Right. How Big Government and Conservatism Brought Down the Republican Revolution. And he is the author of The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. That will form the basis for much of our discussion today. Mike, welcome to The Curious Task. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. It's great to have you on, Mike. The question driving our episode today is, why does poverty persist? And the book that you wrote, The Inclusive Economy, is great because it provides a lot of detail on this problem and its solutions. So I'd like to visit many of its points at at least a high level. And of course, we'll see where the discussion goes. Um, and we always encourage, of course, our listeners to actually go and purchase these books because there's no way that we can cover everything in them in detail in, in the in the 40 minutes to an hour we have. But but first, I'd like to talk with you a bit about the different explanations you put in the book for for why people are in poverty. Now, your book has two chapters in it at the beginning. One discusses uh, reasons for poverty at the cultural and individual level, and the other one talks about the structural level. So at a high level, let's start with the cultural and individual level first. Again, more detail, of course, could be found in your book. But what should the listeners keep in mind as our discussion moves forward at what, what's going on at the cultural and individual level, things that keep people in poverty or create poverty? Yeah, as I mentioned in the, in the book, there are really two competing theories behind the origins and perpetuation of, of poverty. They're both in academic circles, and you see these in kind of dueling papers, but they've also taken on political life uh, as well. And uh, you get real kind of bitter debate between the, the two sides of this. And I try to, in the book, to reconcile the two to some degree. Uh, on one side is this question of the individual behavior, what's called often the culture of poverty. It is often uh, something that's uh, appropriated by conservatives and folks on the right uh, as an explanation for poverty. And it is the idea that basically... The poor are responsible in many ways for their own situation because they've made bad choices in life. There's bad behavior. Uh, Often those are bad choices and behavior are incentivized by the government uh, through welfare programs and such. But essentially it is because of the way the poor themselves are behaving. And a lot of this is based on something that's called the success sequence which is statistically very, uh, very accurate, and uh, both individually and as, as a as kind of a holistic uh, measure. And that's the idea that if the average person uh, completes school, at least completes high school, uh, and then gets a job, and then doesn't have children until after they're married, they are very unlikely to be poor. And we do know that, I say statistically, all of that sort of holds up. Uh, if you, if you drop out of high school, for example, about half of people who do that end up living in poverty. Uh, whereas almost nobody 
who grad goes on and graduates college, let's say, uh, is going to be poor for any lengthy period of time. We know that people who work uh, are not poor generally, as opposed to people who don't work. You know, sometimes people on the left, I think, argue say, "Well, there's low wage jobs and all that," but only three percent of people who have work who work full time uh, are in households that have incomes below the poverty level. And then finally, we know that if you have children and you're not married, you're far more likely to end up in poverty, uh, about five times more likely to end up in poverty than if you don't have children or if you wait until after you're married before you have kids. So there certainly is a basis uh, for, this, for this argument. The question becomes, to some degree, a sort of chicken and egg question. And whether or not is characteristics that are likely to push people into poverty are also the characteristics that are likely to make them less likely to graduate school, get a job, or more likely to have children outside of marriage. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's not dispositive. It, it's, you have a lot of questions of correlation and causation. But it certainly is something there that needs to be considered. And one thing I like that you do in the book in that chapter as well is you do caution people very directly that, you know, of course, stats are great indicators, but many of these are, are correlational correlative. So I know a lot of people, whether it's, you know, when you see those sort of like study shows headlines in the media or someone reads like one op-ed or one article, they say, ah, this is why people are in poverty. But again, one thing I like that you did is you gave a great overview in that first chapter and also said, we got to remember that correlation causation thing. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it certainly is is a case and you can argue I, I think deductively that those uh, those things dropping out of school not working uh, having children when you're, you're not able to care for them uh, those things certainly contribute to poverty seems sort of an, an inductive reasoning type of type of question just take the one that's sort of always uh, held up and that is if you have children and you're not married we as I say you're five times more likely to live in poverty in that instance um, and certainly you can see why uh, you, you have only one income that now has to support both you and the child as opposed to two incomes. That makes a big difference. Right. Uh, you have child care issues. Uh, you know, if the child gets sick, you, what do you do in terms of taking time off from work? How's your employer going to treat that? Is it going to make it harder for you to get a job? Are you going to have to take a job with lower wages in order to be able to support uh, to, ha to have that freedom in terms of time? Uh, all of those sorts of things play into it. So you can certainly make a case that having children when you're not married is not a good thing in terms of getting out of poverty. On the other hand, you can also make the case that said, turns that around and says, well, the reason people who are uh, having children outside of marriage is because they're poor and because they live in communities that don't have a lot of marriageable men. And we can go into that reasons for that later on. Uh, but there's not a lot of opportunities for them to get married before they have kids, and that's more, going to make them more likely to have kids outside of marriage. The flip side to that individual and cultural discussion is that structural discussion. So structural poverty in your chapter, you talk about race, gender, and economic dislocation. And you begin the chapter with, quote, the biggest problem with ascribing poverty to individual behavior or cultural factors is that it implicitly assumes that everyone in our society is operating on a level playing field. So why don't we, we get into that quote and you can also take us through some discussions about structural poverty as well. Sure. And, you know, we, you certainly can't pretend that people have no free will, that people have no choices, that nothing they do matters. That I often say that you can't pretend the win, the poor are simply chaff blown by the winds of fate and totally helpless in the fate of a larger universe that's cruel and indifferent to them or whatever. 
I think that's a pretty condescending way to, to treat the poor. You have to pay attention to the choices, the decisions they make. On the other hand, we all know that all of our decisions are constrained. Uh, you know, in economics, we will always look at the constraints around choices that people make. And the fact is that if you are poor, uh, if you grow up in a low-income neighborhood, if you are uh, a person of color, or if you're a, a woman, you are going to face different sets of constraints than if you're a white middle-class kid in the suburbs. Uh, they, they live in a very different world and face very different choices. If every time you set foot, you know, if you live in an area where there's very few jobs for, very, for a variety of reasons and the few jobs there are are closing up, if the school system in your uh, area is lousy, essentially, and uh, doesn't do a very good job of educating, doesn't have books in some cases or enough desks and all, all of those sorts of issues. Uh, if you live in an area where every time you set foot outside your door, the police hassle you or you don't have role models around, uh, all those sorts of things are going to affect your decisions and make you more inclined or less inclined to make certain choices in your life. And we need to recognize that it's not simply a blank slate that everybody gets to choose equally on. There's a lot of people out there, and I'm sure you've heard this objection or, or this critique before to that sort of point of view, where people sort of flippantly say, sure, some people may have experienced that. But you know, if there's a if there's a child out there, you know, someone that's like, you know, under the age of 12, it's the parents responsibility to like, realize what's going on, and they should set a different path, path for their child, etc. But I think, obviously, the, the structural discussion, one important angle of it is that this stuff is, is, is cyclical, that is to say that this is intergenerational stuff we're talking about here. It's not as if, you know, a parent in that situation can just look out their window and say, ah, structural poverty, I better fix this for my kid. We can trace this over many generations, of course. Well, absolutely. And of course, you're assuming there's a parent there. Well, there you go, right? There, there's my privilege assuming that, right? That's, that's right. That, that is a situation. And, you know, the word privilege often gets bandied about and people have a very negative reaction to it. But there is a certain privilege that says if you grew up in a two-parent household, uh, you are treated very differently. We know, for example, that children growing up in low-income households uh, have fewer, you know, are less likely to read because there's fewer books in the household. That uh, the parents who speak to them use different types of language and different types of reinforcement. We know all those sorts of things go on. Those are going to have an impact. A lot of this is historical. I mean, and you, we're not that far really uh, relieved from massive historical discrimination, uh, at least in the United States. Uh, you know, I mean, take, for example, you know, did your father go to college? Uh, well, in many cases, if you're an African-American family, your, your father couldn't go to college. Uh, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons, he might not have been, been able to get into some of the better schools because they, uh, they discriminated actively. Certainly your grandfather probably didn't go to college uh, because he was kept out. So you don't have the same, uh, you know, sort of family history uh that's that other families do for some you know specifically conservative critics there's often this caricature that they bring up that basically says oh you know the person on welfare the person in poverty is really you know on some sort of comfy lifestyle welfare and government assistance trip you know that often come comes up on their rhetoric and then but on the other hand to be fair 
you know, there's others that seem to want to say this is all structural and beyond any individual's control. You know, either of those views wholesale, you know, the one that you said at the beginning says it's all individual responsibility. Or on the other hand, the the view that says this is all just structural and these people don't have autonomy. Either side, it doesn't really give the people in question, it seems to me at least, the dignity that they deserve. One of the things I pulled, especially from the beginning part of your book, is that, look, it's, it's not just one thing or the other. This is truly a balance of factors. And each case is, of course, unique, depending on how much the balance goes either way, right? That's exactly right. And uh, the very fact that there are people who are born in the most horrible of circumstances and yet rise to become successful, get themselves out of poverty or self-sufficient, support their families, do all these sort of things. The fact that some people do it mean that it's available to others to be able to do that as well. And we should recognize that. But there's no reason why people should have to work twice as hard as everyone else in order to do it. Uh, we, we need to re- kind of recognize that that's not fair either. Twice or triple or quadruple, whatever the case may be. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's not fair to basically say, well, that guy did that. So just all, all you have to do to be like that guy is work five times as hard and everyone has an, has an opportunity, right? And, there, and there's kind of, a, especially among uh, libertarians, there's, there's kind of a feeling that says, okay, but we, the, the love playing field is level now. So what you've got is a race where, you know, it was a 10 lap race. And for the first nine laps, one of the racers had to wear weights and chains and all that sort of thing. And then you struck them off in the last lap and said, yeah, but it's fair from this point on. Uh, and, and I think, you no, no, it's not. <laughs> Right, exactly. Num- number one, is it fair from this point on? That's one question. And number two, even if it is fair from that point on, like think of the the ex- metaphorical ex- exertion and different things that have happened in the past that might be setting someone up for, for not as much the success as the guys that got to run around it, if you will, with no weights. Exactly. So in terms of fixing the problem of poverty, I would like to trace a, a bit of post-World War II history on poverty in the US. Your book makes the good point that it's not as if uh, poverty is something that no one has tried to alleviate before with government action. Right. Your book was published in 2018, and it notes that since 52 years ago, and quote, anti-poverty programs have cost the U.S. more than 23 trillion dollars. And I know we can't get into every acronym and every department ever here, but can you highlight some of the kinds of things that have been done and what progress or changes have been seen from that? Maybe you could talk about at a high level, uh, some successes, some some neutral things or some complete failures, anything to give us this idea of what's been tried over time and what attention has been put to this problem? Yeah, well, we certainly have thrown a lot of money at the at the program in the United States. Uh, we spend uh, about one point three trillion dollars or maybe a little bit more than that every year on anti-poverty programs in the United States. There's more than 100 of them at the federal level. Uh, they cover food and housing and there's uh, cash benefits and childcare subsidies and college subsidies and you name it, there's, there's a program for it and often a a dozen or more programs for it. And, you know, I think some conservative critics say, well, you know, it hasn't done any good and that's not really fair. I mean, you, you, you can't spend $1.3 trillion and not do something. If if you flew over the United States in an airplane and shoveled 1.3 trillion out of the back of it, you would do some good for some people and somebody's going to get to be better off somewhere. Right. Uh, and that does appear to be the case in poverty. The poverty rate is probably lower today because we spent all that money uh, than if we had. But it's kind of a very narrow definition of poverty. It's sort of the material poverty. We have very few people in the United States starving to death. I mean, it, this is not you know, sub-Saharan Sudan or something like that. I mean, we're not living in that kind of poverty in the United States. 
Uh, in fact, if, if you take into account all the benefits that people receive and you kind of add them all together, uh, the poverty rate declines dramatically. I've seen uh, estimates as low as two or three percent of people are still poor after you take into account everything that they can receive uh, in terms of transfers from the government. Um, that, that said, there's, there's kind of a larger poverty, and that is the poverty of being able to be self-sufficient, of being kind of the masters of your own fate, of controlling your life, uh, of being able to rise as far as your individual talents take you. Uh, that, that sort of human flourishing, I think, should be the ultimate goal of policy. Um, you know, if you look at sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, all the psychology students out there suddenly perked up when they heard that. But you had you had that pyramid of needs, and at the bottom are the basic needs of survival: your food, shelter, clothing, the things you're going to need so you don't die the next day. And at the top, of course, is self-actualization. Uh, top of the pyramid, self-actualization. Uh, we do a pretty good job with our anti-poverty programs of targeting that bottom rung. We just keep pouring money into it and figure, okay, we waste two thirds of it, but at least some of it gets through to people and that, that solves that particular problem. Uh, we don't do a very good job at all as you move up the pyramid to higher and higher uh, goals. And we should, we should be aiming for the top of the pyramid, not aiming for the bottom. And, 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 the type of throwing money at the problems programs we have today don't do that. Right. Yeah. So here's a situation where like, you know, I guess some examples would be like people talk about food stamps or, or, or direct rental uh, subsidies, things like that. These are the things you're saying are sort of at the bottom of the pyramid, if you will. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, look, I mean, if you spend enough money on food, uh, you'll have fewer people starving, but you won't have people going out and earning their own food. Uh, so, so that's what you really need to be focused on, I think. You can say in many ways that what we're spending is it might may or may not be necessary. I think in many ways you can replicate that uh, more efficiently in the private sector and do other things that, that prove it un unnecessary. But even if you grant that it's necessary, it is not sufficient for alleviating poverty. The necessary sufficient thing reminds me of, of good old Mil Milton Friedman there. Like him and other classical liberals and other libertarians have often talked about uh, exactly what you said, basically, that, you know, there is, of course, efforts being made and some of it's definitely effective in terms of that lower part of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, shelter, etc. Et but then in terms of the policies not being aimed toward what, what you said, which is up, uplifting people higher up into that hierarchy, if you will, you sort of get what, what often people term, you know, as that sort of welfare trap, so to speak. Um, and in your work and in your research, what's your general feeling on that? Like we, we talked about how, yeah, like it's good to get people on that first rung, but doesn't do do much to, to lift people up the additional rungs. But then there's another part of the conversation that says, even if people have the opportunity to go to the next set of rungs, they choose not to because of the welfare incentive. Yeah, the, the incentive problem for is really a, a big one. The, the highest marginal tax rate in the world is actually not for a millionaire, but for somebody who leaves welfare and takes that first job. Uh, you know, they start paying taxes uh, on the first dollar they earn. In the United States, you pay payroll taxes on dollar one, for example. So you're paying taxes very quickly. Number two is you start losing your benefits very quickly. Uh, and number three, you now have the expenses of going to work, transportation, clothing, child care, all the things that goes with that. If you add all of those together, in many cases, if you're talking about a low wage job or even a medium wage job, you could end up losing uh, money in the short term. Uh, if you take that job uh, in, instead of just remaining on the dole. Um, 
that you know that's not the type of incentive structure I think we want to create. Yeah, and back to that, as you were saying, the, the the critics on both sides, if you will, the more the more conservative ones or the more progressive ones. Let's just say for the sake of this conversation, you often get people responding to exactly what you just said to either a. On the one hand, well, that's because these people through the welfare system have become, you know, so lazy or dependent that they don't want to move forward. And you get people on the other hand saying, well, take a look at the incentives they're facing and you'll see why they don't leave it. And again, like the truth for every individual case is probably yes, on the one hand or on the other, but definitely a blend of the two. Yeah, we're all uh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. If you look at surveys and you ask people on the dole whether or not they would prefer to be on a job. The vast majority of them say yes. They they would actually prefer to work. I mean, there's a, you know there's an inherent dignity that goes with earning your own way. You know, having to go down and collect that check every two weeks. You know, I'm sure some people don't mind, think they're entitled to it, but the vast majority of people are kind of embarrassed by it and, and kind of prefer, you know, would prefer something else. On the other hand, you ask the same people, well, have you you know looked for work recently? And they have to say no, and it's because they sort of intuitively know that if you don't have an attachment to the labor um, labor force, you've been out of work for a long time. You don't have any particularly marketable skills. Uh, maybe, you know, you're a high school dropout. Uh, maybe you have a criminal record. You know, all, all these sorts of things that go into being poor. Uh, your chances of grabbing a job that's going to get you, but make you better off are limited. Absolutely. And I think I didn't actually write down the stat here in a note, but in one of your chapters, what you're saying reminded me that you, you talked about these people being polled, as you said, or and the actual people that may have experienced being, being on a welfare program or some uh, assistance from the state. And there's a different questions asked. And I did some additional research before our, our episode today too, just to see what other kinds of polls existed out there. And many people who, who might be very quick to judge these folks as again, just, just kicking back and lounging will be probably surprised to note that the stats of how many people say, oh, yeah, this is great, is a lot lower than people often think, right? I think there's there's even few questions that have been asked to certain people about, okay, it's helping you with subsistence, but do you feel that this program that was intended to do X and move your life forward has actually moved your life forward? Does the government understand how to actually help you? A lot of people just frankly say no. Yeah, we actually, uh, one of the polls that uh, the Cato Institute did a lot connected with YouGov, which is the New York Times pollster and the Economist pollster. Uh, we, we asked people whether or not who were on welfare, whether or not they thought was more welfare spending or more economic growth, uh, was where the government should focus. And by an overwhelming number, I think it was, uh, it was 70 or 80%. Uh, said that they preferred us to focus on economic growth. Well, there you go. That even shows that at that level, people who may be on government assistance are hoping there there's a way to move forward, not necessarily just a way to get another handout. They certainly want their kids to to, to move forward, and and I think that that's something that's often forgotten. Right. Yeah, exactly. There, there's, of course, that incentive to not only for yourself, but to see that your kids have a better days. We're actually about the point where we're going to take a quick break. Everyone who listens to The Curious Task, I'm speaking with Mike Tanner today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny Leroy, and Darcy Giroux. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task.
Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Mike Tanner today. Mike, uh, the first half of our episode, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about um, the different explanations out there for why poverty continues for people. There was the cultural individual level. There was the structural level. We also talked at a high level about some of the different attempts in specifically U.S. history to to attack poverty, specifically some big attempts, namely with price tags over $23 trillion in, in total. But now I'd like to get a bit more specific about the dis- solutions that you, you discuss in your book. So I, I'd like to start with something you highlighted. You actually brought up economist James Buchanan, and, and you say you agree with him that we need to attack barriers that prevent the poor from prospering, and that the way to do this is basically, one, recognize that the defense of liberties of individuals can only be secured in a market economy, and two, this is to be joined with a strong advocacy to reform basic social institutions so they can produce greater equality among individuals in their initial endowments and capacities. So you've had a bit of a quote there and a bit of your own words in that last part. So let's let's start with the first thing first and second thing second. So what you know, a lot of different people from different points of political views will say, well, here's how we solve poverty, and they'll they'll put out their pet plan. Why is it important that from your perspective, we recognize the defense of liberties can only be secured in a market economy. A couple of points to that. Uh, number one is you can't redistribute something that doesn't exist. And if you don't create wealth, if you don't have a society or an economy that is actually generating wealth, uh, you're stuck with just a shrinking pie that you're just trying to cut into ever finer pieces uh, and, and distribute it. Uh, you, what you really want is that is that growing pie, growing economy, and that comes through a market economy. Now, again, we go back to that necessary and sufficient thing. You need that growing economy. You also need that growing economy to be inclusive so that people at the bottom can be participating in that. You don't want to have a two-tier economy where all the benefits of economic growth adhere to the people at the top, but you have to have that growth to start with. The second is this presumption that the people who are going to run government are going to be beneficent philosopher, economist kings. And they're going to know everything to do in everybody's life, exactly which buttons to push, how to stress the incentives, how to move this this little button over here. And then we, we flip this switch over there and that's going to make everything better. And we're, whatever we do, we're not going to be self-interested. We're going to, we're not going to carry with us prejudice. Yes. When we're in the private sector, we were all prejudiced and we we're all racists and we were all out for our own benefit and walking over people. But as soon as somehow we ended up in the government, all that changed. And, and we, we, you know, suddenly we were, we were wonderful people and all of that. Look, o- over history, the fact is that government has been an enormous oppressor, particularly of people of color and uh, of uh, people with low incomes. Government has generally served people at the top of the food chain, not the people at the bottom of the food chain. And I don't see any reason to presume that that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and just to, to drill a little further into that market points, I think it can't really be overstated that, you know, one of the responses someone might throw back at you with that is like, well, well, look at capitalism, right? There's there's so much corruption. There's so much this and so much that too. But when you, people like you and I sit down and we talk about, you know, the market economy and, and especially people like James Buchanan, because I know he's very interested in this too. We're, we're talking seriously about markets in that way. The kind of things we talked about before where we're talking about even economic playing fields and opportunities, not where the government just creating government program, but even a situation where they start sticking their their hands into the the pod and starts picking economic winners or losers. That's not stuff we're talking about either. Well, that's that's right. Uh, much of what uh, passes today for for crony capitalism that people assign to capitalism is, is very little to do with markets and has a lot to do with political favors being granted on one side or the other. 
and look, markets themselves are not perfect. Uh, you know, but there will always be people who fall through the cracks. And, and those are always tragedies. And we should try to narrow those cracks as much as possible and, and, and help those people in whatever ways we can. That said, utopia is not an option. And the idea that you compare market capitalism to, uh, to a fantasy that's never existed anywhere and say, well, it doesn't measure up. Uh, that's just kind of silly. So the second half of that coin I introduced earlier. So this is everything we just talked about to be joined with a strong advocacy to reform basic social institutions. And and the idea is that here promoting equality among individuals and their initial endowments and capacities to take us through what's going on there. Yeah, we're not talking about equality of outcome. Uh, what we're talking about is equality of opportunity. And what we need to recognize is that many of the institutions of society, and by there, I mean, largely governmental institutions. Uh, but private institutions as well, uh, do not treat everyone fairly and have not historically treated everyone fairly, and they need to be reformed. Now, there's two different ways to reform. The government uh, institutions, we need to reform through government because that's what they are. Private institutions, we can employ private persuasion and uh, you know, our purchasing preferences and other ways in which we can influence them, and, uh, and we should. We'll probably get this later, but I guess one quick funny example that, you know, combines sort of the state and economic inequality in a way is, you know, we're not saying here uh, everyone should go, you know, work for a, the Schneider's delivery hot dog company because it's a big corporation. Maybe we should get rid of like ridiculous licensing in some places for people to start up a little hot dog business or something, right? This, that's one silly example, but but kind of, I guess, in a nutshell, the kind of things we're talking about. If you have barriers to entry in the market or, or things that are tilted a certain way, that's not really helping people with their initial endowments and capacity. That's kind of blocking them from prospering and flourishing. Well, ex exactly. Uh, and occupational licensing is a great example for that. It exists to protect people, the big institutions and the people who have the, uh, the credentials today uh, by uh, being essentially a barrier to entry for new people moving into the field. And often, you know, the government, that's the way the government does. If you look back at its history, uh, many occupational licensing provisions were put in for explicitly racist uh, reasons and things of that nature, or to keep uh, certain classes out uh, of certain professions. There was often, a, that was often the deliberate behavior. You can look at things in the housing, for example, it was the policy of the U.S. federal government uh, into the 1950s to not allow, to, to sort of redline, to prevent mortgages from being offered or insure, mortgage insurance from being offered to people of color. Uh, you know, and then that blocked them from being able to get into housing. They had to move into poor neighborhoods. Uh, and, you know, the sort of segregation that took place out of that has consequences that exist until today. That was a government action. Right, right. And, you know, to add another example, a lot of, a lot of the uh, wage and labor laws established, particularly in sort of the, the mid-north and more, more north, where, where decades and decades ago, a lot, a lot of that was often simply, uh, quite frankly, you know, white people trying to protect their position from a lot of blacks that were moving from the south up as well. Yeah, the late, great Walter Williams did a lot of work on that and had some explicit examples, some great stuff in the congressional debates where when the, uh, the uh, prevailing wage laws were passed, uh, for, they were demanded that union labor uh, be employed on all government contracts. Uh, Clayton Allgood for, uh, was one of the senators who sponsored that. And he, sp he stood up on the Senate floor and said, we have to do this to prevent cheap, what he called cheap colored labor 
from undercutting good union jobs. And I think that speaks for itself, quite honestly, what's going on there. A lot of people that are sort of just very much at the surface, always pro like a, a law here and there, a union law here and there, whatever the case may be, you should look a little bit more into that stuff. I'm going to move us on to a couple more uh, specific policy pillars for discussion that, that your book noted. Uh, we've kind of already skated it a bit, skated around the surface a bit on it. So let's dive into a couple here. So you call for in the book, to reform the criminal justice system. And there's a second part of that, curtail the war on drugs. But but at a high level, and again, I, I will always say that there's always more detail in uh, Mike, Mike's book, everybody, so go check it out. But at a high level, how is the justice system a burden on the poor specifically? Yeah, I mean, we look, we know the American criminal justice system. And uh, by extension, I can tell you that worldwide, we, we have seen this as well. Uh, the criminal justice system is not uh, generally fair, and it certainly treats people of color in a very different way than it tends to treat uh, treat whites. Uh, but we also know that it has a long-term effect on uh, poverty. And there's studies out, there's one out of Vanderbilt, I quote in the book, uh, that shows that if you reform the criminal justice system alone, you could reduce poverty by about 20%, which is a really significant hit, perhaps the most one of the most significant reforms I talk about in the book. And let me just give you a couple of ways. Criminal record, for example, if you uh, did something uh, when you were young, that you shouldn't have done and you ended up arrested and you got that criminal record, you carry that with you for the rest of your life. And that makes it harder to get a job. It makes it harder to get housing, uh, rent an apartment. It gets it makes it harder to get into college, uh, to get a scholarship. Uh, it, it can hold you back in a huge number of ways. Um, it also, because it holds you back from getting a job and doing these other things, it sort of takes you out of the marriage pool. Uh, Harvard's William Julius Wilson would talk about this. The fact that conservatives, and, and we'd mentioned this earlier, talked a lot about the fact that you shouldn't get married until, uh, or you shouldn't have children until after you get married. Well, for a lot of uh, women growing up in low-income neighborhoods or in the inner city, uh, the, the men have been taken out of that marriage pool because they have been tied up in the criminal justice system. They're in jail, they're on probation, they've got a criminal record that makes, it, that makes them unemployable. And if we go back and look at why they have that criminal record in the first place, in many cases, it is simply because of the overcriminalization of our society and because the criminal justice system itself is often unfair. And then the thing that people sometimes say to all this as well, you know, um, especially those that consider themselves really strict law and order types are saying, well, if you can't, you know, do the time, don't do the crime. But I think it's it's very interesting to point out that and very important to point out that once you kind of go into very, very many, sometimes even in some areas, the vast majority of cases, you don't see someone murdering someone and going to jail. Well, that's something we could probably all agree with. It's just more the case of very sad cases sometimes, right? Maybe someone gets a couple of parking infractions and because of their current income, can't pay whatever silly fine comes with that. And then there's a warrant out for the rest. And then the thing just snowballs from there. And you end up with somebody in jail for a year or two. And that takes that that's crucial time, especially if someone's like 18, let's say, out of their lives that puts them behind in many ways over over a couple of parking tickets. Like if, if that's if parking tickets and marijuana is putting people in jail for years and, and stealing time away from their lives, it's very important that I think people remember that's what a lot of people are in prison for. Yeah, if you actually look at the, the parking tickets or the traffic violation thing is a very good example. Um, if you look at the report that was done on Fer in the Ferguson, Missouri, uh, after the riots there on the Michael Brown shooting, uh, that's one of the things they showed there is that a lot of these small towns use traffic violations as a revenue source. Uh, and they would stop people. And was, of course, you had the problem with largely white police force, largely black population. But people would be stopped for failing to signal or something like that and get a very large fine that a person who's unemployed or on the edge 
uh, simply couldn't pay. And then the next thing they know, those fines were doubled. And then you, then you lost your license or you lost your insurance. And then you couldn't drive to work. So you lost your job. And it just, just snowballed into a, into a real uh, disaster for these people. And then, of course, the, the war on drugs was the second part of the, your call for reforming the, the criminal justice system. I mean, we don't need to spend too, too much time on that, because I think by now anyone interested in this topic is, is, is either fed up with the war on drugs or very informed on it. But I guess just this idea of, you know, we've, we, you can see it in the news, you can Google search it, just like essentially military force to kick down people's doors to treat weed as bad as heroin. I think this is that we can easily see how this is causing problems in people's lives that just do not need to be there. Well, that's that's right. And, uh, you know, we can say that, OK, uh, marijuana is being largely legalized in the United States on a state by state basis. But there are states where marijuana is legal, at least California, for example, where people are still serving uh, 20 year prison sentences for selling marijuana before it became legal. So you saw those problems. I mean, we overcriminalize in general. You have not just the war on drugs, but you have the war on sex work, which is basically the war on drugs, but applied to women. Uh, and then you have. Uh, you have, you know, we actually we shouldn't forget the fact that Eric Garner, who was killed in New York by the police in New York, uh, was killed for the crime of selling an untaxed cigarette. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So, uh, so I mean, it, this overcriminalization is is a big problem uh, across the board. And I'm going to move us on to to another call from your book to reform education and give more control and choice to parents and to break up the public school monopoly. So there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things going on there, but how, how are we going to reform education? And what would that look like? And, and why is that so important? Look, education, getting a good education is hugely important to getting uh, out of poverty in the long run. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you're a high school dropout, you're about half, uh, half of high school dropouts live in poverty. Uh, you know, if you're a college graduate, you might be poor for those first few months when you're looking for a job, but the chances of you being poor for long term are, are pretty minuscule. We want, we want people to be educated, uh, certainly. But our public school system, particularly in inner city areas, does not do a very good job of that. And there's a lot of historical reasons. It has to do with the, the funding bases. It has to do with the, with the expectations that teachers have. It has to do with role models. There's a, there's a whole host of reasons that go into that. But the fact is that if you are in, a, you know, in the suburbs, in a middle-class school, uh, you have a very different chance uh, of graduating and going on to college than if you do if you're li- growing up and going to school in the inner city, let's say. We, we want to give more, create more competition, more opportunities. We want to create more innovation. Education hasn't really changed in the last 300 years. It probably goes back even longer than that. Essentially, now we, you know, we have a computer screen instead of a, uh, instead of a chalkboard. But essentially, it's the same pedagogy and stuff like that. We, we should be experimenting in new innovation, new ideas on how to educate people, particularly how to reach uh, hard to, you know, hard to teach children and pre- children and growing up in uh, poor circumstances. We should have new ideas for that. But the existing system sort of freezes everything in amber, if you will, and, and doesn't allow for that sort of innovation. We, we too often were designed to protect the system. Uh, rather than to protect the kids. Absolutely. And then the part about giving parents more choice and control over their not only their child's education, but in, that in fact extends to like their own life, basically, and their, and their own routines. I think that's a huge part of that, too, with more market uh, innovation and, and more choice. You know, people's different individual needs uh, can, can be served and as well, like things that will match better with lifestyles, depending on what the family is going through. Perhaps they'll just become entrepreneurs, too, and be able to educate their own children. Yeah. I mean, too often we sort of educate by zip code. You're assigned a school based on where you live. And if you don't like that school, well, too bad. Nothing you can do about it. 
you know, I, I went out to a charter school in Oakland and they, they were taking kids from a neighborhood where, according to standardized tests, 0% uh, were able to read and do math at their grade level when they entered the school. Uh, you know, uh, there's, whereas if you go just a few blocks over to one of the wealthier neighborhoods in Oakland, uh, it was in the 98th percentile range. So, you know, clearly something's not being done on an equal basis there. I'm going to move us on to another one. You're talking about one thing that's crucial is that bringing down the cost of housing. So let's start with why is the cost of housing so high in many areas? Yeah, this this one really surprised me. Uh, th- when I started doing the research for why poverty persists so for so much, many people, I really didn't take housing into account. I, I said, okay, there's some housing programs. I know people are on waiting lists to get into public housing and stuff. But I didn't see it as how important it was. It really is huge. Uh, and the biggest reason why housing costs so much is because we don't have enough housing. <clears throat> this is sort of classic supply and demand. We have more demand for housing, particularly in areas where there's a lot of jobs or good schools or uh, low crime rates. Those are areas where people want to live. So people flock to those areas, try to move into those areas, uh, and that builds up the demand for housing. At the same time, we have too many regulations. Uh, zoning laws and historic preservation laws and environmental regulations and other things that essentially prevent people from building the housing to meet that demand. So it's not a surprise that you see uh, some of these communities uh, with with enormous rents. Uh, and of course, now that you know, now that we're in the COVID epidemic and stuff like that, where people have trouble paying their rents, we're seeing the consequences of that. Right. And, and housing markets are often places, too, where you essentially have many people in the general populations, especially specific neighborhoods, ultimately becoming, in a way, their own kind of rent seekers towards government power in, that own, in their own way, right? Like you have people saying, well, I don't want two blocks away from me this type of tier of income housing being built. So everyone gets their counselor together, goes to the uh, goes to the municipality, gets that banned or gets that regulated again. And But on the other hand, you know, a lot of these suburban folks are the kinds of people where if you just ask them at a high, at a high level, you know, should we have a situation where the, the, the poor or people who don't have ho- adequate housing get more of that, they would, of course, say yes. So there's often contradictory incentives at play, too, in cities. Oh, yes. And you see, I mean, some areas of California, for example, uh, about three quarters of all residential land in California is zoned strictly for single family housing. Uh, so you can't build multifamily housing in, in the vast majority of California, particularly along the coast or the Bay Area areas like that. Uh, even very tentative efforts to try to change that have been met with these opposition. And in fact, you, it's sort of bipartisan there. You, you'd expect to say, okay, well, these are obviously wealthy conservatives who don't want poor people in the neighborhood. Uh, Robert Reich, uh, the former uh, labor secretary and one of the leading liberal voices, had led an effort in Berkeley to prevent multifamily housing in his uh, block uh, in Berkeley. <laughs> so, uh, so you see this sort of across the board. Uh, and it's a very tough one to overcome because people, you know, it's their biggest asset is their their home. They don't want anything to affect their their housing values. But uh, but ultimately, they don't have a right, I don't think, to have the state prop up their housing value at the expense of other people. Let's shift gears over to making it easier for the poor to bank, save, borrow, and invest. I think this is another one that a lot of people 
thinking about poverty, why it continues, and and you know the way the ways to help solve it. This one might not be at the very top of the list, but when they talk, when at least when I read about it too and got warranted, it's one of those aha moments. So why don't you take us through that? What what's going on there? Why why is this such an important point? Yeah, look, you don't get rich by spending money. You get rich by saving money, or you don't get out of poverty by spending it all. You you want to have savings so that you can. Uh, invest in a business or buy a home or do things like, or send your kid to a better school. You want to build up some sort of savings so that if something happens and you lose your job, if COVID comes down and you're laid off from your waiter or bartender job, uh, you've got some savings to fall back on. Uh, but strangely, our systems it seems almost perversely uh, in, to encourage people to spend as much as they can and penalize them if they try to save. And I look at this on two, two levels. First, in, in terms of just making it easy for people to, to save, um, we have so many, you know, we're so afraid of the war, you know, we got the war on terror and we're afraid of money laundering and organized crime and all those sort of things. So we make it very hard to simply open a savings account. Now, the rest, I would say outside of the United States, the rest of the world's way ahead of us on this with mobile banking and people do things in Africa, for example, with their phone, they never go near a brick and mortar bank. Uh, but, uh, but the United States is still largely brick and mortar banks, but you have to have all sorts of identification to open a savings account. About 20% of poor people don't have sufficient ID to be able to do that. That means that you can't, of course, obviously build up savings. You can't borrow against it to get that credit card. You can't, uh, you know, you, if you, if you get some money, you get a check, you've got to put it onto a check cashing place to cash that check and they take a big hit out of you. So it costs you in uh, all sorts of ways that way. We also put in asset tests against uh, most major welfare programs, which is you know just sort of backwards. Uh, it basically says that, look, if you um, you can only have so much in the way of assets, you can't have a car, for example, you can't uh, own a house, you can't uh, have money in the bank, or we'll cut off your check. If you get it, if you get a welfare check and you go out and you spend it all, say, hey, look, you know, hey, there's those new Nikes. I'm going to go down and buy them. That's cool. We're fine with that. But if you took that same money and put it away in a, a college education fund so that your kid could go to school someday, uh, we're going to take away your welfare check. And and that just seems to be completely backwards. Right. You can, you can, you can invest, quote unquote, in short-term goods or consumables, but you can't invest in yourself with this money. Yeah, that's right. And of course, investing in yourself is probably the best way in long-term to get out of poverty. And we're talking pretty low levels. In a lot of states, the United States, it's $1,000 of assets. Uh, California, $2,200 of assets. Uh, you know, what can you do with $2,200 in many cases? I mean, that that's just, that just makes no sense. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and one way I like that you just kind of summed it up in the book at, at some point, I don't have the exact quote here, but you basically noted that, you know, we shouldn't just think about wealth accumulation as something that the quote unquote wealthy do, right? Like, you know, someone like a Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, that has a lot to do with shares and stocks. We won't get into that. But the point is, when you think of people that are ultra rich, um, that these shouldn't be the people that you uh, say are the only kinds of folks that are a quote unquote accumulating wealth. This can be something that you start at a very modest level at, at the at the very bottom of the income scale. And, and your whole point is we need to incentivize people and encourage them to do so. Sure. I mean, first of all, we don't want a two-tier society in which there's one group of people who get to be have wealth and another group that are excluded from wealth. That's just, that's just you know, you want to talk about inequality uh, in society growing over time. That's a guarantee of that because we know wealth builds wealth and not having it simply builds poverty. The second, the second part of that is that we, we, we don't want to create incentives 
for the wealthy to do better and the, and for other people to be sort of left out of that. And and we sort of are doing that through deliberately in many cases with the policies that we have. I'm going to move us on to the last call in your book, which is very much related to all the things we've talked about today. But you say, look, we need to and you noted before that economic growth is even something that when people that are uh, in lower income are polled say that this is important. You say economic growth isn't enough. We need inclusive economic growth. So conceptually, what is that? Then we'll get into a couple more specifics. Yeah, look, we know, we know as we talked about earlier in the hour, that a growing economy is absolutely necessary if we're going to lift people out of poverty. You, you've got to create new wealth in order for people to have wealth. And, and I think that we know uh, there's enough evidence out there, you can look around the world historically, uh, that essentially, you know, tolerable regulations, tolerable level of taxation, you, want, you, you, you can't kill the golden goose uh, with taxes and regulation if you wanna get economic growth. So there are sort of broad-based economic growth policies we absolutely want to pursue. Low taxes, minimal regulation, that sort of thing. But a lot of, I think a lot of conservatives and a lot of libertarians sort of stop at that point, say, okay, you know, we slashed the, the marginal tax rate, that's enough. And, and the, the reality is that you also have to look at whether or not people at the bottom are able to take part in that growth. And if you have regulations, you have government action that is preventing them from being part of the growing economy, what you're going to get is the growing levels of inequality, which is a recipe for instability. And you're going to get this sort of two-tier society we've talked a lot about, uh, where you have, you know, one group that is is doing well, and then another group that is getting left further and further behind. Right. Yeah. I mean, me personally, I really like this idea because it's basically like, you know, there's a lot of talk, as you were saying, there's a lot of talk about economic growth out there. People like to talk about increasing GDP, the stock market, all this great stuff. And I'm, I'm not being flippant. I'm saying that is important stuff. And economic growth in general, as you said, is a good thing. But I really like the idea that you, ha that you have to, if you're serious about markets and, and equality from, from the liberal, like a classical liberal perspective, that an another sort of plane of analysis that needs to be there when you're looking at this stuff is exactly as you said. Is this something that's being applied across the board that everyone can have access to in terms of opportunity? Yeah, markets should be neutral. I mean, markets shouldn't be, uh, I mean, they, they're sort of like gravity. Uh, you know, Bill Gates doesn't fall at a different speed than does a poor person. Uh, and markets should be roughly the same way. They should lift everybody up. Uh, the, the problem is that we often sort of draw some sort of barrier in between the, the Bill Gates and the poor person and say, We'll have a different set of rules at the top and then we do at the bottom. And that that's not a free market economy. Exactly. If, if we're if we're serious about celebrating even things like market discipline and profit and loss, that has to be across the board, not just for certain people. Yeah. If you're a banker and you go bust, you shouldn't get bailed out by the government. If you want to get a new sports stadium built, the government shouldn't build it for you. I mean, those sorts of things are not about uh, market economies. And if you're poor and you want to be able to go out and start a business, you shouldn't have regulations that get in the way of your starting that business or hiring somebody or, uh, or you know, uh, being able to practice a profession because you don't have the proper licenses from the government. Those, those sorts of things are barriers to your participation. Well, it's time for our formal wrap up here, Mike. So let me say, you know, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. And in every episode, I want to make sure that the guest has the last word. So let me formally ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on why poverty persists and what we can do about that? If you want to leave them with a couple of things or a few things to, to really take away from all this, what would those be? Well, number one is I think that we sort of have missed the debate when it comes to why poverty persists. I think conservatives tend to want to blame the poor themselves and say it's their own actions. 
their own behavior that's left them poor. Liberals kind of want to blame society at large and say it's racism and gender discrimination and, and, and so on. Uh, I think there's actually a certain amount of truth to both those arguments. But, that, but they're missing the real villain, which is often the government itself. And too often government policies, whether criminal justice policies, education policies, housing policies, economic regulation, banking, whatever the area you're talking about, too often government tends to work to benefit people at the top and to penalize people at the bottom. The answer is not more money thrown at more programs. The answer is to get government out of the way and let the poor participate in a growing inclusive economy. Mike Tanner, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. My pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.